This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro. Before we get started, just wanted to remind you that we are available on all of the major podcast streaming platforms. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and of course, Apple Podcasts. As our audience grows, so does our reach. If you know someone that should have health gig in their lives, next time you see them, invite them to subscribe to the show. Namaste. Hi, this is Trisha. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 26th at Georgetown University, and we really hope all of you plan to join us. You'll come and be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Brad Snyder is a retired U.S. Navy officer who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. After a battlefield injury that resulted in complete blindness, Brad began his second career as a U.S. Paralympian. Brad has competed at two Paralympic Games, earning five gold medals, two silver medals, and a world record in all. He is a wonderful, remarkable man. Please welcome Brad Snyder to HealthGig. Welcome, Brad. We are so happy to have you here today. It's great to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where did you grow up and tell us about your family. So I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. I swam from the age of around 11 years old or, or so competitively, and it's a really nice area to grow up swimming. I lived in Bradenton, Florida for a while, and we were in and out of Anne Marie Island there at the beach all the time, and then moved up to St. Petersburg for high school. Definitely a child of the water. My family's all beach people, all suntanned all the time and in and out of the water. <laughs> I grew up with three siblings. I have two younger brothers and a younger sister, and we were all real close growing up. And all of us at one point, right as I was entering high school, all of us were swimming together. So we all swam for the same club. My mom and dad were always down at the pool doing the different things that need to be done from the parents, like timing. And my mom handed out sandwiches to the coaches for our long swim meets. Anybody that's a swimmer or a track athlete knows that our meets go on way too long. (laughs) But it was a family affair, doing sports and all of that. I had the opportunity to train with a guy who was trying to make the Olympic team at that point. I would argue, actually, this guy is the best male swimmer in the United States never to make the Olympic team. His name's Robert Margalis. He was a great friend of mine and a great influence on my athletic career. And I kind of joined his dream for a while, wanting to be an Olympic athlete. Dreamed of that from the age of 11 on up to about 17 years old when I realized I probably was never going to be able to make the Olympic team. Robert was far better than me. And for me to see him struggle the way that I saw him struggle, I just kind of knew I wouldn't be an Olympic athlete. But the next best thing in my mind was to go to college and compete as a Division One athlete. And I started looking around at different programs that I might fit into. And the Naval Academy pops to the top of my list. I had the opportunity to do a campus visit when I was a sophomore in high school and set my sights on the academy, and it became my, like, number one dream. I got a list from the admissions folks about, here's all the things you need to do to go to the Naval Academy, and I just started crossing those things off as quickly as I could. I took the SAT, I started doing community service, did this and that, the other thing, and when it came time, I actually got early acceptance into the Naval Academy, and that's all she wrote. You ended up having two deployments, serving our country. 
and the second one changed the trajectory of your life. Can you tell us about the day of your injury? Yeah. So I was on my second deployment. First time I deployed, I went to Iraq, and the second was to Afghanistan. I was an EOD officer, an explosive ordnance disposal officer. My job was to mitigate explosive hazards in the variety of ways that we encounter them in the operations of the military. And my particular job on that deployment was embedded with an assault group that was charged with helping get the Afghan Special Forces program sort of going. So we would train these Afghani commandos on how to do special operations, and then we would actually go on missions with them. We were in an area that's a pretty nasty area of Afghanistan called the Panjway Valley. Even as far back as 2011 was one of the areas that the Taliban was pretty active, and the way that they were waging that war at that time was the IED, the Improvised Explosive Device. They were all over the place. In fact, I spent most of my time out in front of our patrol with a metal detector looking for them in the ground. Unfortunately, two of our Afghan Special Forces guys missed them in the middle of our patrol and stepped on an IED. Two of them were really badly hurt. Me and a few others on the assault team were trying to get them to a helicopter where they could get taken to the hospital, where in that effort, I stepped on another one. So we were in a really bad area. Then we had three casualties. I got really lucky with the way that the explosion happened. It blew up in front of me, not underneath me. If it had blown up underneath me, there's a pretty good chance that I would either be dead or way worse off. The fact that it blew up a short distance in front of me meant that I took the blunt of the damage with my face, which sounds probably worse than it was. I was able to make a really quick recovery in that most of my wounds were superficial. But unfortunately, your eyes are these really delicate, miraculous things that take a lot of small, nuanced steps to work. And unfortunately, both my eyes were damaged beyond repair, and I was blinded as a result. And that happened on September 7, 2011. Wow. And we've heard you say that you thought you were going to die, right? That you looked down and you saw your body. There was no blood. It wasn't damaged. And you were just sort of waiting to see if you were passing over. Yeah, that was exactly the feeling. It was such a strange feeling. I felt like time stopped. I felt like there was this flurry of activity, and we were trying so hard to get these guys to help and you know it's all these things going through your mind and you're running from one place to the other and there's a lot of things that happen to you especially when you see someone really hurt like just adrenaline starts to pump and you really feel like i've got to help this person they're down and they need me to do x y and z and they need me to do it really quickly because they're really badly hurt and if i don't do all the right things in the right amount of time then something worse could happen so i'm running around in a frenzy and all of a sudden boom everything stops And there's no longer any frenzy. There's no longer any sound. There's no longer really anything. And like you said, I could still just barely see out of my left eye and I could look down and I saw my body and I saw that there wasn't anything wrong with it. And in my mind, I knew I'd heard the pop and I knew that I had stepped on an IED, but the fact that nothing was wrong with me just meant that I thought I had passed over. I had kind of skipped a beat. Now I was just waiting for whatever happens after you die. And I don't know. And I was kind of just waiting. And I had this feeling. I thought my grandfather was a veteran of World War II. He died when I was 11 years old or so. Growing up as a little kid, he was always my hero. Everybody respected my grandfather and not necessarily for his service, just the person that he was. He was just a really amazing guy, really invested in the people around him, invested in his community, just a person of character. And I grew up wanting to be like him. And I thought that he'd be the one to take me to whatever happens after you die. And I felt his presence there. I felt like he was there for whatever reason. And in a moment like that, anybody who's had one of these near-death experiences, you, you think through your whole life. You think about all the good stuff you did and the bad stuff you did. And I remember thinking that 
I think I lived an honorable life. I was happy with the life that I had lived. I was sad that it wouldn't go on. I was sad I didn't get to say goodbye to everybody. But I thought that I had lived the right way. I had done the right things. I had lived up to my grandfather's example. And I was, in a weird way, content with the fact that I was dead. And it's such a powerful thing to have that thought and then come back. You know, shortly after that moment, I could hear the ringing in my ear and all of a sudden I could hear shouting coming from a different direction. And I realized it was my friends looking for me. And just moment by moment, all of a sudden I became more and more aware, okay, I'm not dead and time didn't stop and my grandfather's not here. In fact, it's my buddy, Adam, and now I need to get up and I need to get on this helicopter. And then all of a sudden I started to panic. I started to think, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I could all of a sudden feel that something was wrong with my face. There was blood and there was damage and there was something wrong. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know if there was some sort of traumatic brain injury or something like that. So I started to freak out. But all the guys around me had such a great team, and they were all so quick to help me out, get me where I needed to go. And they were actually people making jokes right off the bat. I think they were glad that I was alive. I was glad I was alive. And I think we all knew with the right attitude, everything's going to be fine. In fact, I remember thinking when I got on the helicopter, I thought, I wonder how long I'll be out for, like a week, maybe two weeks or something. I thought I'll be back soon. And it turned out that I wasn't. You know, I I suffered an injury that's going to prevent me from doing that job ever again. But, you know, I got lucky with the way rehab unfolded and I got pushed into some other stuff really quickly and I was able to adapt pretty quickly into my new life. So you did quickly begin your rehab in the pool, the place you described growing up in Florida and your family being in the water all the time, probably the place that was the next most comfortable place for you, maybe. What was that like? What was your mindset? You're right. The water was such a natural place to go back to, and it was really comforting in so many ways. Going through an experience like that, Everything feels so foreign in the hospital. I loathed hospitals before that. I had never really had anything majorly wrong with me. I didn't like to be down. I didn't like to be in a hospital. I didn't like to have so much attention on me. I didn't like to be incapable of certain things. And so the hospitals are very foreign, uncomfortable, strange experience. And blindness is even crazier. Like you never really imagined what it's like to just exist in the dark perpetually. So going to something that's comforting, you know, my mom, my mom was so important during that Mm. time in the hospital to hear her voice and to know that she was with me through all the craziness of the hospital was so important. But then you had to kind of go outward from your places of comfort. And the water was definitely a place I needed to go and to help me kind of rebuild myself and to start to expand outward and become more and more comfortable with the world around me. I was in Walter Reed first like 10 days, week and a half was intensive care or so. And then I got out of intensive care by the two week mark recovered pretty fast to a point where they allowed me to go to a VA in Tampa to be near where my mom was. And since I was there, I had all my old network, all my swimming friends, my old coach. It just seemed like a natural fit. My coach was actually the first one to say, hey, you know, since you're here, do you want to come by practice mm-hmm. uh, on Saturday? Just the most routine thing in the world is to go to Saturday practice, head down to the pool and swim for three hours. I didn't swim for three hours that day, but that's what mm-hmm. I used to do when I was a kid. And I said, yeah. And A part of it was for me to kind of acclimate and start to rebuild myself. But another part of it was, I think, an under-discussed, under-addressed component of the wounded story is the families. Like, you guys focus on this quite a bit. But my mom had to sort of go through this injury and then rehab process along with me. She was injured in that she watched her baby boy go out to the world, and I got blown up. And she had to come see me get off the plane at Andrews all messed up and in a sea collar and on a gurney. And she had to watch me come back from surgery with all these sutures on my face and to be bloodied and to be in so many ways down and out. 
And so it was traumatic for her. So I kind of recognized that and I wanted things to go back to normal as quickly as possible. The more I could normalize my injury, the more I could normalize blindness, the more I could just make everyone feel comfortable with it. That was really important to me. And again, that routine, that feeling of being back in the water was important for me, but I feel like it was important for my family too. And I think it was. If you ask my mom that question, there was a sense of satisfaction for her to watch me swim and to be free and to not be so dependent on a cane or a dog or a talking phone or anything like that, just to be free in the water to go back and do what I used to do so often. And I think that was important for us. To your point, a year later, you're competing in the Paralympics. What gave you the strength to immediately begin competition? <laughs> Sounds crazy. like your mom <laughs> yeah. might have been. Yeah. Uh, I, that's kind of the inspiration behind the whole thing. But I think then nature took over and opportunity took over. And I was in the pool. It was actually the United States Association of Blind Athletes is a group based out of Colorado Springs. And there used to be a job set aside for a guy. His name's Rich Cardillo. He was out there looking for wounded vets because he had a little pot of money that he could use to get blinded veterans into sports programming. And he heard that I was a swimmer and he heard that I liked swimming. He heard that I was good at swimming. And he said, hey, why don't you come out and give this Paralympic thing a try? Honestly, at the time, I didn't even know what Paralympics was. I didn't know that it was held in conjunction with the Olympics. You know, it's going to be in London that year. I think Rich was the first guy to reach out and say, do you know how lucky you are to be injured in a Paralympic year? And I said, that sounds like such a funky way of looking at it, but I love your attitude. And I never turned down a challenge. And I, I was ranked pretty well first shot out of the gate. And all of a sudden I saw like this really unique, cool challenge emerge before me. And I thought, wow, what a neat opportunity it would be. What a cool challenge. I have the capability. Let's see if I can do it. I needed to get into the Paralympic trials. I needed to go to this place. I needed to go to that place. I needed to get a coach. But it was really a magical year in that everything really just lined up the way it was supposed to. And before you knew it, like you said, I was on the blocks at the Paralympics in 2012, racing for my country in a race I was favored to win. And I backed it up and actually won that race and won a gold medal on the anniversary of the day I lost my vision. And it was a really powerful experience for me to kind of prove to myself that this is not going to be an obstacle. There's a world of opportunity out there. And all I need to do is, you know, keep working at it and things will kind of manifest for my family too, for them to be in the stands. That was the most important thing I think to me was for all of them, you know, September 7th, 2011 was an ugly day in their lives. They woke up at 530 in the morning to get this pretty nasty phone call from a poor Navy officer who didn't really want that job that day. But that Navy officer's job was to call my mom and say her son had been blown up and he's really in bad shape. And he's good news is he's alive, but we're going to have you fly to Walter Reed as soon as you can. Like, that's not a fun, good phone call for anybody. And for all my family to go through that experience, it was tough. It was not a good experience for anybody, but we completely turned that around in a year. And for everyone who was in the trenches for that injury now gets to hang their hat on the gold medal and say, you know, we turned it around and we replaced all those negative memories with some really positive ones. I think that's the important thing about that day for me. Could you talk to us a little bit about how getting in the pool was different without your sight? How did you do it? I mean, how do you know when to turn and how did you relearn that so quickly? My coach down in Florida, a guy named Fred Lewis, He's been coaching in the same program for a really long time. At this point, he's now coached multiple generations worth of swimmers. People he coached in the 90s, he now coaches their kids' kids. You know, he's kind of that kind of guy. He was really ripped up when I got hurt. He was really sad, I think. For him, too, he needed to, like, he wanted to participate. He wanted to help, and he participated in the way that he knows how to 
offer me that, hey, you want to come by practice? That was him like reaching out to me and sort of embracing me in a certain way. I showed up to the pool that day, not even really thinking about the problem that you just laid out. Like, so how does a blind person swim? I didn't really think about it. I was just like, all right, let's see. Yeah, let's do it. And we showed up on the pool deck and my coach had it all figured out. He's like, all right, you know, those pool noodles that kids play with the little mm-hmm. foam kind of spaghetti noodles. He'd run a rope on the inside of one of those. And he ran it from one lane line to another lane line in front of the wall, about an arm's length away. And he's like, all right, Brad, you see here, you get you, you get you in the pool right here. And then you're going to swim back and forth. And as soon as you hit this little noodle with your head, you just reach out and the wall will be right behind it. I said, all right, Fred, that sounds great. That's how it started. It was just like, just back and forth, super slow. I touched the pool noodle. I reach out and there the wall was. Swimming in between the lane lines was no problem. Like, you know, it's a left and right limit. I just, if I hit the right side, I go back to the left and so on and so forth. When you're going slow, that's that's no trouble at all. That was good enough for then. But then once we started to get competitive, we started to think, like, how can I go fast? How can I start to speed it up? And then that's when I started hitting the lane line really hard. So I had to change the way I do my arm recovery and drag my fingertips on the surface so that I could stay away from the lane lines or at least know where I was. If I touch the right, I know how to get into the middle of the lane. If I touch the left-hand lane line, I know how to get into the middle of the lane. And then we Googled the Paralympic blind category and they use a tapper, they call it. A coach or a volunteer or somebody stands on the side of the pool with one of my blind canes, about a six foot long stick with a tennis ball on the end. And as I get that far away from the wall, they reach out and tap me in the back to let me know, hey, look out, the wall's coming. So I either finish with my arm or I flip turn. And we started practicing that over and over and over again. And that's how we got fast enough to be competing at the Paralympic level. So were there any down days? And if so, how did you get yourself back up? It's weird. I think the worst days actually came after the Paralympics. The worst days were, you know, I think when you have this big challenge in front of you, I I could kind of occupy every day with practice. You know, I've got to go to swim practice. I've got to do this thing. I've got to do X, Y, and Z. You you can kind of fill your time and fill your mind with, you know, stuff. So you don't have to think about the hard stuff. What is it going to be like to live the rest of my life blind? And what's it going to be like to go through all of these life nodes that we think about that we envision for ourselves when we're young and we're growing up. The example is like, I've got to get a job now. And being blind and being disabled in the workplace is not an easy thing. And I didn't know how that was going to work, but I know that I want to have a job. I've got to participate in the community. I've got to be the impactful person I was as a Navy special operator, but now I've got to do it without my vision. What's that going to look like? I was single at the time. Like you asked a strange question, but you're like, am I lovable? I might be viewed as broken goods, like, is a woman going to love me even though now I can't see? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to love the same way now that I can't see my partner? Is my relationship with my family going to suffer because they're always feeling like they're taking care of me? These are all big questions that hit you. You know, I didn't really think about that much in 2012. All I thought about was Paralympics and swimming and all those other life questions hit me in the years following. You know, it took some time and it took you know, you have to address those things and you have to sit there with it for a little while and you have to go out and have some experiences. And the way I think that I I started to work through it all is this kind of constant philosophy of I can only control what I can control. So I'm going to look to make the most of the things I can control, make the most of the variables I can control. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm not Superman. I don't have superpowers. There are a lot of things out there that I can't control. And it doesn't do me any good to tie a lot of emotion to the things I can't control. And an example of that is I can't take back my blindness. You know, it is what it is. I can't control how other people think of me. I can't control what opportunities are out there. What I can do is make the most of what I have, make the most of the opportunities that are out here, 
maintain a sense of gratitude, maintain a positive outlook, and just keep on trucking, never give up. And I think those are the things that I can control. I can control my mindset and my work ethic. And I just decided if I'm going to succeed, it's by optimizing those things and letting go of the things that I don't have control over. It's not always easy. And it depends on the circumstance. Sometimes it's easy. If the challenge for me today is to get up and have a cup of coffee, then that's super easy. If the challenge for me is to fly halfway around the world and go compete in a triathlon or something, that takes a lot of mental effort and a lot of reframing my perspective challenge after challenge after challenge. So it's taken a lot of practice and it's still something I sometimes struggle with, but a lot of those things have been abated, right? I don't worry about being dependent on people. I have really clear limits on what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of. And I accept help when I need it. And the people who are nearest to me know where those boundaries are. But I strive for my independence as much as possible. And the people who love me are able to give me that. I know what I'm capable of in the workplace. I know how to utilize adaptive technology to do all the things that I need to do to keep a job or to work towards my education and so on and so forth. I'm happy to say that I'm getting married in a couple of weeks. Yes, we are going to ask you about so, that. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. And we, I, that's why I was a little bit late to this podcast is we were on a call with the wedding planner to talk about what we're going to do on November 2nd. You know, so it's a super exciting time of life. There's never a shortage of challenges and we all face challenges and we all have to sort of rationalize and put things into perspective day in, day out. But my life in totality is a really beautiful, amazing life. And reflecting on the whole experience, my life is so much more rich having gone through that experience, that injury experience and the rehab experience and the Paralympics experience. I've gained so much more than I've lost. And I'm really thankful for that. And I think most people who have suffered these sort of traumatic injuries and these traumatic near-death experiences will probably say the same thing. Once you emerge on the other side, you're kind of thankful in a weird way. We have a couple other questions, but okay, tell us how you met your fiance. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> tell us all about I'd that. Like tell the story. Uh, so we were actually set up by a mutual friend. I met this really nice woman named Amy. I gave a speech in Vegas, and I was on my way back from Vegas. It was one of those ugly red-eye flights, super tired and cranky and hadn't had a real good snack. And this delightful woman named Amy comes and sits next to me in the plane. Gizzy was with me. Gizzy's my guide dog. And she starts asking me questions about Gizzy and this and that. The other thing, and instantly we were best friends. This woman's great. She helped me get to a cab, you know, after the plane landed and everything. And she gave me a hug. And I think we both knew, like, the chances of us ever seeing each other again are so unlikely. You know, she was married, had kids, lived in Annapolis. I was living in Baltimore at the time. I had a different job and so on and so forth. You know, it was a neat, like, instant friend situation, but I didn't think I'd ever see her again. And she kind of thought the same thing, but she was like, Hey, do you want my number anyway? And I said, yeah, sure. Didn't think anything of it. And I didn't see her again for another almost year. And then I moved to Annapolis by a strange stretch of fate. I started working at the Naval Academy. A good friend of mine started a CrossFit gym up the street from where I live. And I was working out at his gym and Amy comes running over me at the gym. <laughs> Brad, you. And I was like, what are you, Amy, what, what are you heck? doing here? So I live here, you know, and so it was just a chance encounter. And she said, we should go get coffee since you're new to the neighborhood. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. So we're just catching up. And she asked the dreaded question for every single person. Are you single? And I said, oh, yes. I thought, oh, no, I, you know, what's, what's going to happen out of this? And so she immediately, within an hour, says, hey, you need to email this person. And I said, okay. So I sent kind of a goofy email about <laughs> how we're being set up. And Sarah and I agreed to have coffee, just kind of thinking, if the date goes bad, you know, we can both leave and it's no drama. Um, mm -hmm. We ended up sitting at coffee for three hours. 
And then at the end of that, Sarah was kind of like, hey, I have to go to Target. Do you want to go to Target? I said, sure. And then she said, hey, I have to hit the grocery store, too. Do you want to go to the grocery store? Sure. (laughs) And we've been attached at the hip ever since. So I feel very lucky to have met Amy. I feel very lucky to have met Sarah. When you look at these things, for a stoic like me, I don't put a lot into fate. I try to make my own luck happen. I try to make my own good stuff happen by working hard and putting myself in the right place and making deliberate good decisions and so on and so forth. But it's so hard to look at meeting Sarah in any way other than it was fate. You know, it was something lined up so magically and we're both very grateful. She's 34, I'm 35. I think when you meet the person you're supposed to be with later in life, I think you appreciate it a little bit more. Mm. And I think I speak for both of us when I say that. So We're so excited to get married on November 2nd and start our new lives together. So I appreciate you letting me kind of, you know, talk about it for a little bit. So exciting. So you mentioned a triathlon. Tell us about that. Are you training for a paratriathlon or what's up there? That's great other news too. I just wrapped up my triathlon season. I raced at the World Championships in Switzerland and a week later I raced at another World Cup in Spain. That was a few weeks ago and this season's over. And at the end of the season, I'm essentially ranked fifth in the Paralympic ranking. And I have to be top seven. So if I stay at my current ranking, I should hopefully make my third Paralympics next year in Tokyo. So that's my goal. I switched sports and added a bike and some running to see if we could keep that challenge, you know, exciting. And it's been a tough challenge over the last few years, but I've worked my way up the rankings and hopefully we'll be able to take the family to Tokyo next year for the Paralympic Games in 2020. Wow, that's incredible. And you also, you mentioned that you teach at the Naval Academy? I do, yep. I teach in the leadership department. Right now, I'm just guest lecturing in a couple different courses, but I have taught in the full-time curriculum for both leadership, the ethics course we teach to our youngsters. It's kind of a philosophy course about how do we determine right and wrong, especially for military members. And then I also teach in this class I really love called Code of the Warrior. I actually just finished my last class today on the Shaolin Monastery. We're talking about different warrior cultures across time and how they create and protect their ethical codes as warriors. It's a really neat course, and I I really like being at the academy. I'm actually trying to get accepted into a PhD program so that I could come back here as a tenure-track professor to the Naval Academy full-time. So that's my dream, and unfortunately, it's one of those things that it's going to take me five years to put that together, but hopefully we can make it work. Wow. And you're also on the U.S. Olympic Committee? Yeah, I'm a, I just got elected to the board <laughs> as one of the athlete directors to the board of directors this year. So I just started that in January, and it's been a both rich and awesome experience and a tough one as well. There's a lot of difficult problems facing our modern American Olympic and Paralympic movement. The Larry Nassar scandal from the previous years in gymnastics is a really not fun thing to look at when you say that there are people out there trying to prey on our young and and trying to prey on athletes who are trying to go to the Olympics and Paralympics and we need to protect our athletes from those people and we've had to have some really difficult strategic conversations about how we do that and I'm happy to report though we have an amazing leadership team at the Olympic and Paralympic Committee who are doing really amazing things. We've made a lot of progress. There's still a lot of work to be done but we're on the right track. I'm glad to be a part of that team. Tell us about the Bradley. (laughs) Oh, so the Bradley's a fun story. I have a friend who was getting his business degree at MIT a few years ago and met a fellow who had this grand business idea. It's one of those sort of like Shark Tank pitches about, you know, have you ever wondered why blind people don't wear watches? And it was because nobody really took the time to make a watch for the blind. It's a very small market. Most blind people don't have jobs, don't have a lot of money, a lot of disposable income. You're going to build a business it's a suicide idea to do it marketing towards the blind community until this really smart fellow who lives there in D.C., Hung Soo Kim, 
decided we're going to make a watch that everybody will like. It's really a good looking <laughs> watch made out of nice, sturdy materials, but we're going to change the design so that a blind person can tell what the time is. And they changed the design by having these rotating ball bearings that rotate on magnets the way that an analog clock works. So there's an hour hand on a small ring on the front of the face and then a minute hand around the outside edge. And you can touch these ball bearings that are positioned the way that an analog clock would be to tell you what the hour and the minute is. And they started marketing it in, I think it was 2014. We did a Kickstarter campaign where all we needed to raise was about $20,000 to be able to get a couple prototypes made. In 28 days, we raised $600,000 and got really wide participation from a lot of people who thought this was a really cool idea. We got the company started, and the company's called E1. It's for everyone. We designed a watch that everyone can enjoy, and it's sold really well. And Hung Su met me through my buddy Sean and wanted to name it the Bradley so we could help bring this to the market and reach out to the blind community and reach out to the broader community. And it's a cool watch for sure, but the more important part about it is it does carry that narrative of inclusive design. The more that we can incorporate the entire community in the way that we design both infrastructure and products, it really is an impactful way to go about business. And I like to advocate for inclusive design by wearing my Bradley every day. <laughs> You're really an advocate for a lot of the technology that's coming out, right? Do you still work with the Toyota Start Your Impossible? Absolutely, yeah. So Toyota completely rebranded globally, and they don't think of themselves as a car company, and I think they want the world to think of themselves as otherwise as well. They think of themselves as a mobility company. And a really neat sort of emerging mindset within Toyota is they're developing all these really neat things within the self-driving car world, right? All these neat sensors, really smart GPSs, laser range finders and optical camera recognition, a camera that can recognize things on the road. And you need this really high speed, amazing technology to get a car to drive itself. And while we're not there, we're really close. And a Toyota had the idea a while ago, like, why don't we take all these technologies in a little module and allow that to provide context to a blind person? So they have this little device called Project Blade that is in the development stages right now, but it's a little module that a blind person could put on their shoulder and it would use all those really fancy car sensing technologies to then relay that information audibly to a blind person, i.e., what street are you on? You know, what store am I standing in front of? What color are these flowers? Is this person talking to me, a person I recognize, or is this a, a stranger? You know, all these little pieces of information that might be really helpful to a blind person can be offered by the technologies that Toyota is already developing for another application. They've taken this mindset into other technologies. They have these really neat ergonomically stabilized wheelchairs. They have a wheelchair that elevates a person who has no functional working of their legs. It actually stands them up as they're moving around to allow them to be on the same level as everybody else. I, I don't think everyone recognizes the social dynamic of always being lower yeah. than everybody else. You know, wheelchair users often get forgotten and left out of conversations. And mm -hmm. being able to be elevated is a unique thing that some might be interested in. So Toyota is working on developing those technologies to really bridge the gap and enable the mobility of the world. I like to advocate for that. I like to advocate for inclusive design overall, but Toyota is doing a great job of leading that effort globally. God, you are one inspirational <laughs> fella. <laughs> Just oh, are. Your mom is probably so proud of you. Oh, my goodness. What is a quote that you could share with our listeners? So in my Code of the Warrior class, we teach this book called The Book of Five Rings, which was written by a guy named Miyamoto Musashi. He lived in Japan as the 
samurai were sort of fading away and Japan was modernizing right around the turn of the 18th century. And Musashi's life goal was to become the best swordsman possible. And he wrote the Book of Five Rings, which was meant to be sort of a manual of how to become really good at swordsmanship. And it's become a book that's universally applicable. You can apply it to sports. You can apply it to business. It's really an interesting book, and it reflects a lot of what's neat about Eastern philosophy and Zen Buddhism and so on and so forth. But there's a great quote from that book that says, think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. And I like that quote. Don't take yourself too seriously. Be humble. Be a person of humility and be a person of character. But spend the time to really think about all the big problems in the world and your place in it. I I like that quote a lot. That reminds me of you, (laughs) for sure. And then, Brad, if there was one book you would recommend everyone read, what would that be? Deferring to my Code of the Warrior roots at the Naval Academy, I like the Iliad. When we talk about leadership, we talk about character, we talk about what it means to be a warrior or a good citizen, I like to go back to what we call first principles, and I like to go back to the old texts, the classics. There's nothing more classic to me in the warrior canon than the Iliad, the story of the Battle of Troy, the heroes of Achilles and Hector. And there's so many really neat lessons that can be distilled out of that really old text. And it's really rich to think that the Battle of Troy was thousands of years ago. The story of the Iliad is thousands of years old. But when you really dig into that text, you see a lot of the struggles that we face in the modern world between our relationships or what it means to be a warrior or all those different things are character struggles that existed thousands of years ago. And there's really neat insights you can pull from the Iliad. So I love going back to reading the Iliad. I I read it every so often, and there's always something new I can pull away from it. Mm. Brad, you are amazing. You are. Sarah is a lucky lady. So lucky. So lucky. I'm the lucky one for sure. (laughs) You're lucky too. You'll see what I mean. Oh, good. Thank you for taking the time to be on Health Gig, and we so look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. It's been my pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks as well. Can't wait. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.